This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Thanks for tuning in to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. We've got a good show today. We're going to be talking about a lot of the issues that are percolating both in the markets and on the policy front. We're going to check in with Emily Score from Growth Energy. She testified yesterday in front of the EPA about the renewable fuel standard. We'll get her take on that in segment two. In segment three, we're going to talk to Ted McKinney. That name probably rings a bell to a lot of us in farm country. Ted was the Undersecretary of Agriculture uh, under Secretary Sonny Perdue in the Trump administration. He is now the head of the National Association of State Departments of Agriculture. They met this week for their winter policy conference. Ted will join us and tell us just what the departments of ag around the country are looking at in 2022. And finally, at the end of the show, we're going to talk to Gary Porter about the Commodity Classic. It's just around the corner, ladies and gentlemen. That's hard to believe. But first, I know a lot of you folks got up early this morning, went outside, and you saw some weather. This massive winter storm that's moving across the country is having a big impact, or or it could. To give us some insight, Greg Sol meteorologist on This Week in Agribusiness joins me. Greg, fill us in on this storm. How big of an area is this guy going to cover? Well, much like, you know, a couple of weeks ago, it is wide and far-reaching and expansive uh, from some uh, beneficial, uh, albeit accumulating snow, but at least it is moisture for you folks down there into the uh, Texas and Oklahoma panhandle country, still snowing across uh, southern and eastern Kansas. And from there, it propagates north and east, where there, there may be parts of the mid-Mississippi Valley sections of Illinois, the central Corn Belt areas of uh, Indiana uh, that come up with a glaze of ice uh, before they get maybe a half a foot of snow. And south of there, and none too far south of there, there's about a swing of some 30 to 40 degrees. Uh, we've seen an inch or two worth of rain in the overnight hours down in the parts of southern Illinois. There'll be an inch or two coming through the I-70 corridor and southward uh, past the Ohio. So frozen ground, snow melt. We know the drill up here across the Dakotas. That means flooding already getting into play over that part of the Corn Belt. And the rain and the snow melt extends for now all the way into the northeast of New England. So another one is wide and far reaching real estate after real estate, the chunk of uh, storminess that's going on across at least parts of the heartland to our east and south here currently uh, this morning. Yes, and Greg, the moisture, that snow and that rain, of course, in the middle there, there's likely going to be a band of ice. As you mentioned, we've got a lot of listeners in Missouri, in Illinois. Where do you see that ice line lining up and when's it, is it going to start? Well, it's underway. It's uh, it's freezing, uh, sub-freezing temperatures and raining just north and east of the Ozarks up to about Columbia, Jefferson City, Missouri. And from there, closing in on St. Louis, they've been back and forth between freezing rain and rain. It's uh, roughly probably in a line from about St. Louis to Champaign, a little north of there, uh, that we'll likely see. And then back to, to just north of the Ozarks, uh, significant ice accretion, maybe quarter inch on some of those trees and power lines before some of those spots come up with close to a half a foot or a little more snow so that's uh, situated a little bit north of that ice line and again farther south we do anticipate uh, that rain is coming down into parts of the southern corn belt the northern parts of the ohio valley to shift to ice and then snow as well so yeah good part of the corn belt in problems and already uh snow's coming down lickety split into northern and western missouri eastern kansas some of those uh, folks just north of that ice area seven, eight, maybe nine inches worth of snowfall. The good news, at least out of the storm, and the storm from a couple of weeks ago, there's been a vast improvement to the uh, drought situation. The sporting's drought monitor now down just to uh, abnormally dry. We've actually seen, I know it's snow on the ground, and it opens up a can of worms come snow melt season, but some drought improvement and alleviation of the drought pattern, technically speaking, over eastern South Dakota, western and southwestern Minnesota, and southeastern sections of North Dakota. Long way to go points west and east from there, but at least a little snippet of good news on this morning's drought monitor. Yeah, that drought in Montana still looks bad as I take a look at the monitor and those southern plains areas, Texas and Oklahoma panhandles. Greg, you mentioned they're going to get a little dusting of snow from this storm. As you look out in the southern plains, is there any system that could provide relief here in the short or medium term? 
Now, really nothing to speak of, uh, first of all, across the Montana, at least if you get into uh, up to maybe the foothills, the high plains, and, and west from there into the Rockies, there will likely be a pretty good upslope snow, and you folks that live out that way know about that whole orographic lift thing. But next week, over the weekend, into early next week, a wedge of this Arctic air settles southward. Upper-level winds are out of the south and southwest. Low-level winds are in from the north. That at least piles up the air. It lifts, and with a cold air in position, we've got a pretty healthy moisture maker in the form of ice and snow in Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, those central and south ends of the winter wheat belt. I know it's moisture, and it's going to be a problem for livestock operations and travel, but it is moisture, the wrong kind perhaps, but there's signs of an ice uh, and snowstorm there. And some of our listeners through Nebraska, uh, maybe the Corn Palace to Empire region, up into the Twin Cities and points east and south from there, maybe in line for a winter storm, maybe localized blizzard conditions materializing as well between Monday and Tuesday of uh, next week. Storm tracks still to be determined. It may be just sort of a longer duration snow event, uh, but there is still a lot of winter a lot of cold still showing up in the maps and charts, and I would think uh, for folks maybe thinking about planning, wanting to roll some heavier equipment out, just keep it in the shed. I, I don't think there's anything going on, and not only through the northern plains, but a good part of the Corn Belt locale, too, here in the coming uh, days and obviously weeks here across the heartland, sir. Yes, indeed, Greg. And, you know, as we think of the, but the storms we've seen here in the weeks past, we get this wave of moisture that comes through. And then at least in the northern Corn Belt, northern plains, the temperatures have just dropped like a brick afterwards. Yeah. Do you see that happening after this storm that's uh, coming through this week? Yep, I, I think so. As a matter of fact, we may actually lay out some of this Arctic air. I think last weekend uh, up north of the Arrowhead uh, through the south-central Canadian prairie, we saw reading actual air temperatures, 30, 35, 40, some spots down to 44 degrees below zero. These cold Arctic kinds like to migrate where the snowpack is more dominant, and that's our neck of the woods, generally speaking, with the exception of areas towards the Black Hills and the High Plains areas west from here. And we see another one of those massive highs building on him uh, a little bit west of uh, Lake uh, at least the Manitoba area, uh, Lake Winnipeg area, and then south and across the Dakotas. So it may be once again one of these one-two punches. First we get the wave of snow and ice to come out of the central and southern plains to the northern and western Corn Belt, then the Arctic air settles on in. And it will be a propagation east and south of some of that cold, so these recent rains over parts of the Midwest will certainly ice and freeze up again, and there's a better propensity to start putting uh, snow on top of that across the Corn Belt locales. Hence the thinking, we're not done with winter and cold here, through the northern and central plains, hopefully some additional snowfall in the drought and uh, at least moisture deficit areas, snow cover deficit areas west and southwest of here. And there's more winter to come, typical of La Nina. It's an extended winter. It's a delayed spring in many areas of the Dakotas, the upper Midwest, points through the northern and eastern Corn Belt, and we see that playing out, unfortunately, uh, quite succinctly here in the weeks to come, sir. Greg, in the immediate future, this storm that's running through right now, is it going to bring high winds to anybody that we need to be aware of? Uh, not not terribly strong, you know, to put things into perspective, perspective on some of the recent storms that have come on through. However, you know, you come up with ice uh, on some of those trees and power lines and through Missouri and parts of central Illinois, and a 20 or 25 or 30 mile an hour winds as you kind of accrete some of that ice there does cause a problem. Now, next week, yeah, there may be some winds that hit 35, 40, 45 miles per hour, and hence with this dry, powdery, low-moisture content snow, the likelihood of, uh, of at least severe winter storm, maybe blizzard conditions. Livestock people certainly plan accordingly Sunday to Monday, particularly from Fargo south and east uh, as we move on through the early next week time frame. Fantastic, folks. You can get more of Greg Solier's forecast by tuning in to This Week in Agribusiness on RFD-TV each weekend. Greg, thanks for joining us today. Anytime, my friend. It's always a pleasure. And folks, stick around. Emily Score from Growth Energy will join us when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Choose the proven performance of the Roundup Ready Extend crop system, featuring high-yielding Extend Flex soybeans and the exceptional weed control of Extend-to-Max herbicide with vapor grip technology. Elite genetics, triple herbicide tolerance, flexibility that delivers results, backed by 25 years of innovation. That's the Roundup Ready Extend crop system, the system of choice. Extend-to-Max is a restricted-use pesticide. Always follow stewardship practices, all pesticide label directions, and check with your state pesticide regulatory agency for specific restrictions in your state. They say if you listen hard enough, 
you can hear the corn grow. It's true. When you're out in the field, you understand its challenges and what it needs to thrive. Channel Seedsmen bring insights from the field to our team of Bayer plant breeders. Their knowledge inspires our product development. From your best ground to your most challenging conditions, our products are designed to perform in your fields. Visit ChannelListens.com to see our latest innovations. Always read and follow IRM where applicable. Grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. Each and every day, DTN and Progressive Farmer editors are posting unique, original content to their website at DTNPF.com, bringing you the latest news and information you need for your day-to-day business decisions. Their award-winning newsroom covers markets, news, and weather, while also providing insights on crops, cattle, equipment technology, and more. You'll find innovative topics like, would you plant soybeans in December? Experiments look at the possibility of boosting yields with early planting. Want to save time? Learn how through autonomous machinery systems. Will there be a surge in feed prices in 2021? And what's today's weather forecast for my farm? The editors of DTN and Progressive Farmer are committed to delivering the essential intelligence farmers need every day to help your farm business be more efficient and profitable. Visit DTNPF.com today. You are not your diagnosis. A medical chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too. To be a beacon of strength. A champion of courage. An advocate for hope. You are not alone. Because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. We're fighting macular degeneration, retinitis pigmentosa, Usher syndrome, and the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We We win. We, we, we We are are the the foundation foundation fighting blindness. blindness. Together, we are fighting blindness. Join the fight at fightingblindness.org. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Thanks for tuning in today to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. Yesterday in Washington, D.C., the U.S. Senate Committee on the Environment and Public Works held a hearing, and they called this hearing the Environmental Protection Agency's Renewable Fuel Standard Program Challenges and Opportunities. That happened yesterday in the Capitol, and Emily Score, the CEO of Growth Energy, had the opportunity to present ethanol's case and talk to the senators about biofuels and what they mean for the environment and for the economy. She's going to join us now to bring us up to speed on what she talked about yesterday. Emily, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Mike. Pleasure to be with you. Would you tell us first who all was at the hearing? What were you talking about? What's it like to present in front of a Senate committee? Well, it, it is quite an experience um, to, to speak with the senators. I thought Chairman Carper um, of the committee, I thought he, he ran a good hearing. And of course, the setup is to be contentious because you've got, I'm representing the oil industry. You had an attorney representing small refinery exemptions. So to a certain extent, we each kind of played our roles in terms of advocating for why we want to see, you know, certain things out of the RFS. And for me, it was all about the fact that the RFS is a good law. It's one of the best clean energy policies that we have on the books. We just need to fulfill its potential. And it's been untapped as a tool in terms of our climate change and mitigation. Um, and, you know, so there were certainly contentious moments. And I think different senators would, would ask us kind of different heated questions. But here's what's, you know, here's the important takeaway from the conversation. Here's where I heard consensus. Consensus that liquid fuels are going to continue to be the fuel source for the majority of the cars on the road for decades to come. Consensus that we've got to decarbonize our transportation sector, and we've got to do that affordably, and we need to do it with what's available. And the affordability was a key uh, 
comment. Every senator talked about gas prices. It's very top of mind for consumers and for lawmakers right now. And so, you know, my point is the best way to bring down gas prices is to use more ethanol in the fuel supply. And the best illustration of that is anywhere you pull up and you're able to put a 15% ethanol blend into your gas tank, you will save money at every single station. So, uh, you know, a lot of conversation about gas prices um, and how the RFS will help bring prices down affordably and immediately. Uh, but it was a good hearing, and I, and I enjoyed it. Well, that is good to hear. And when you're making these cases and you talk about the RFS being undermined for the past, well, really since its inception, what was the response? Do you feel as though you're you're making inroads and explaining why these small refinery exemptions were, were so harmful to the ethanol industry? You know, I think so. I mean, you're, um, we had Senators Ernst and Senators Stabenow and Senators um, Duckworth. Um, are both, all three of those uh, senators are on the committee, and they're certainly very supportive. Um, you know, when you're talking to a senator from Wyoming or West Virginia who has small refiners in their state, it's a little bit harder, and they really they want to listen more to the small refiners. So it's uh, it, it's really kind of the senators that don't have one constituent or the other. That's who you're talking to. That, that's the person whose mind you want to change. And when you talk about low carbon options that are affordable, and that the RFS is going to help keep our industry strong, not only for light duty vehicles, but for the promise of hard to electrify sectors like aviation, you know, then you've got their attention. And that I could see. Um, and, you know, the argument that we need a strong RFS, we can have carbon standards in addition, low carbon fuel standards in addition, but you've got to get the modeling right. And that's what we need for innovation to take us to the next level. And I think that's where I could, I, I could see, you know, some people were starting to listen a little bit. Getting the the numbers right, as you're talking about the low carbon fuel standard, the models have to be accurate. Emily, do, do you think we're making them more accurate? Are we capturing the right data in order to tell the, the clean energy story of ethanol? Well, that's one of the frustrations. You know, the carbon intensity of, of ethanol has a different score depending on the modeling that you're using. The gold standard that we all point to within the industry is the Department of Energy Argonne National Labs. They have the most robust data set in terms of the innovation, specifically the agricultural innovation taking place on the farm, and they update that model on an annual basis. So we are really fighting to make sure, you know, the California low carbon fuel standard, that model it doesn't have enough robust data for us. Oregon is better, but still, we, we need to make sure that low-carbon farming is accounted for. So we are still on the quest to make sure that we get the right modeling. I think what's important is there's so much drive in Washington right now toward low-carbon solutions, toward getting to the hard-to-electrify space, that I think they're going to, you know, they're starting to listen. We've got to be able to get there. Ethanol is a low-cost, low-carbon feedstock, but you've got to make sure that we're eligible with the modeling and the tax incentives. Absolutely. And Emily, we're also on the quest for finalized renewable volume obligations from the EPA. We're still waiting on 2020, 2021, and 2022, those final numbers. When do you expect to see them? And do you think they're going to change from the proposal period prior to the, uh, the comment period? So we won't see those finalized likely for a few months. We're pressing for them to work as expeditiously as possible. I mean, the good news is um, the 2022 numbers and proposals are exactly where we need to be to be leaning in on, on biofuels. It's the highest total a number of renewable fuel ever. It includes that 15 billion gallons for conventional biofuel. There are some, we have some serious issues with the proposal for 20 and 21. Um, you know, if I were to, to guess, I would think the final numbers will probably be somewhat similar to what we've seen in the proposal, uh, but we are certainly pressing the case that they've got to fix it and importantly finalize it quickly so that it takes effect with this calendar year. Emily, one of the comments that was made as I was reading about the, the hearing yesterday was from an attorney representing the oil industry, and they said that if the EPA were to deny the 60 or 65 small refinery exemptions that are there right now, it will drive these refiners into bankruptcy. Does that does that hold water for you? Would the, the economic impact for those refiners be so large if they had to step into the market now and buy RINs? No, it does not hold water. And this is something that we disputed and I disputed aggressively in the, in the, in the hearing. Three administrations and the courts have affirmed that the cost of RFS compliance is not a hardship for refiners. All right, so that's established. Three, the Trump administration EPA, the Obama and the Biden administration EPA have all affirmed that. Furthermore, you know, it's established, and even refiners have said this, that the cost of purchasing a RIN, that's something that they pass through in the sale of their wholesale product. 
Um, so, you know, it's quite a threat to say, if you don't do this thing, I will go out of business because we've had the RFS in place for 2007. So what happens when the RVOs come out and they don't go out of business? Okay, then you're crying wolf as an industry. So it's an interesting tactic that they're taking. But absolutely not. You know, the cost, um, the cost of compliance, if that's their stated concern, and I made this point as well, then they have eliminated, they sued to eliminate the easiest option to bring down the price of the RIN, and that's year-round sales of E15. And the person who loses out in the end is the consumer. Emily, why would year-round E15 sales help reduce the price of RINs for these refiners? Well, the simple fact is that more ethanol in the gas supply brings down the price of gasoline. So E15 is about a 5 to $0.10 cents savings per gallon. So that's how the consumer is going to benefit. And for the refiner, the more you blend ethanol, the more RINs you're going to be, these are the credits, the more credits you create, and you're going to bring down the price. It's just supply and demand. So the, the path forward for any refiner complaining about, oh, this is an expensive proposition, blend more ethanol, and that's when they bring the price down if they're buying credits on the market. Emily, as you think about the 2022 and prior RVOs that could be coming out shortly, is there, will there be more hearings, more comments on Capitol Hill, or now is it behind closed doors at the EPA and we just wait for the final numbers? I, I don't think there's going to be any more hearings on the RFS. I think this was the big one yesterday. It's really now at the EPA. They will be reading all of the comments. Our comments, Growth Energy, were 650 pages. That's how much science and data we have to validate our positioning and perspective. And so we will continue to kind of have conversations. And, and there's the political pressure game of, of members of Congress uh, putting in calls into the administration, reminding them that they've, they've got to follow the law and do right for biofuels. But really, it, it's, it's at the EPA. The ball is in their court right now. And they've got 650 pages of comments from Growth Energy Plus, all of the other ethanol industries and, and folks who have filed comments, both in support and opposed, I would suppose. Emily, now that we're, we're kind of putting 2022 on the back burner, looking ahead to 2023, what would you like to see from an RVO perspective? And are those conversations happening quite yet? Those conversations are happening. Uh, and so what we need out of 2023 is an RFS. So the EPA from 2023 on, they're going to set targets that are multi-year. So it's not going to be every single year we get new requirements. It'll be a couple years together, and that's good for the industry. That's going to give us some certainty and clarity, and everybody in the value chain needs that. Uh, what we need is for them to lean in even further, make sure that they're accounting for all of the innovations on the advanced biofuel side, renewable diesel, look at the capacity that's going to come online for renewable diesel, approve the pending technology applications for corn kernel fiber. I've got members who are producing cellulosic ethanol today, but they're not getting credit for it because the technology has been sitting around at EPA for four years waiting for approval. So there's a lot of opportunity, and we are in there in the mix talking to EPA about what they need to do to get it right. Well, Emily Score, thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to come on the show and talk to us about what all was happening in Washington, D.C. We appreciate it. Thank you. And folks, stick around. We'll talk with Ted McKinney, head of NASDA, when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Choose the proven performance of the Roundup Ready Extend crop system, featuring high-yielding Extend Flex soybeans and the exceptional weed control of extend max herbicide with vapor grip technology. Elite genetics, triple herbicide tolerance, flexibility that delivers results, backed by 25 years of innovation. That's the Roundup Ready Extend crop system. The system of choice. Extendamax is a restricted-use pesticide. Always follow stewardship practices, all pesticide label directions, and check with your state pesticide regulatory agency for specific restrictions in your state. They say if you listen hard enough, you can hear the corn grow. It's true. When you're out in the field, you understand its challenges and what it needs to thrive. Channel Seedsmen bring insights from the field to our team of bear plant breeders. Their knowledge inspires our product development. From your best ground to your most challenging conditions, our products are designed to perform in your fields. Visit ChannelListens.com to see our latest innovations. Always read and follow IRM where applicable. Grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. 
Well, as we take a look at the grain trade, soybeans and wheat are our leader to the upside. We again saw a very strong soybean sales in the weekly export sales and shipment report, while wheat was weak and corn was just okay. Now, exporters sold a net 106.1 million bushels of U.S. soybeans in the week ending February 10th, with 50 million of that demand being for old crop supplies, the remainder for the crop yet to be planted this year. China and unknown destinations combined for a net 21.9 million bushels of the old crop demand along with 51.7 million bushels of the new crop purchases as well. Now, this is reinforcing concerns about global soybean supplies as production estimates in South America continue to trend lower. Now, corn traders must respect gains in the soybean market while the feed grain, along with wheat, are also keeping a close eye on the geopolitical risks seen in the Black Sea as to as the tensions appear to be rising again. Reports of shortages of crop chemicals are also increasing, raising concerns for the summer row crops globally as well. Soybeans also trading higher as bean oil made a new contract high, and new crop November beans are trading within just a few cents of the high. We also got another daily sale announced of 4.4 million bushels of old crop soybeans to unknown destinations. Taking a look at the numbers right now, soybeans for March up 13 and a quarter, 16 and three quarters. July beans up 12 and a half, 16 on one and a half. March bean meal up a dollar ten a ton, 450.50. March bean oil up 31.6728. March cord up three and three quarters, 650 and three quarters. March Chicago wheat up 13 and three quarters, 794 and a quarter. March Kansas City wheat up 12 and a half, 820 and a half. March spring wheat up 7959. Live cattle feeder cattle and hogs are mixed slightly lower. As we see crude oil down $1.76 a barrel at $91.90. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. I'll take dig a little, learn a lot for 30 bushels. Soft and crumbly. Tom. How does healthy soil feel to the touch? Correct. Dig a little for 40 bushels. Sweet and earthy. Tom. What does healthy soil smell like? Yes, go again. Dig a little for 50 bushels. Dark, porous, and alive. Tom. What does healthy soil look like? You win. Understanding the basics and benefits of healthy soil can make your farm a winner, too, through lower input costs, better yields, and drought protection, which can lead to a healthier bottom line for your business. Contact your local Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out how you can unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service and this radio station. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for making us a part of your day. You know, just as production agriculture has seasons, right? We've got planting, spraying, harvest, calving, weaning, etc. We've got things chunked out by time. The same is true in policies. We've been having a lot of policy discussions because in D.C. right now, the policy discussions are moving along hot and heavy. And one group that is getting their policy voices into the mix is the National Association of State Departments of Agriculture. They're seeing CEO Ted McKinney joins me this morning. Ted, your winter policy conference happened this week. How was it getting together with all of the other state departments of agriculture? Oh, Mike, I think most people would say it was a wild success on just about all uh, on all angles from people getting together. I mean, we heard more people saying I haven't been out since 2019 or 2020. So giddy is probably the right word for many. Uh, the, the discussions were robust. We had an incredible diversity. We had 40 of our 50 states represented, 30 of our state commissioners, secretaries, and directors. That kind of all means the same title, but they carry different names in the state. So we're thrilled. And then we made some announcements as well. So we're looking back now uh, after its conclusion yesterday with a big smile. Well, that is good to hear. It is nice to get out and connect with everybody once again. Ted, before we talk about the policy recommendations that NASDA has prepared for this upcoming year, I don't think we've talked to anybody from NASDA on the show yet. So I was wondering, could you tell us a little bit about how NASDA works and why you guys exist? Sure. 
Well, the National Association of State Departments of Ag is just that. We're the uh, industry group that represents all of the secretaries, directors, and commissioners of ag. Like Farm Bureau, we're the only organization that covers all 50 states, and in our case, four territories as well. We're over 100 years old, and so uh, for those many, many years, we have taken state departments of ag interests and represented those interests into Washington, but also beyond. I mean, we're doing a great deal more international stuff. So, for example, in October, 30 years now, we celebrated what we call the Tri-National Accord. This is when the provinces of Canada, the states of Mexico, and the states of, India, of, of the U.S. come together and talk about mutual areas of interest and difference. So it's all policy, it's trade, it's international trade, uh, it's all of that, and we've been doing it for a long, long, long time. Well, it is good to hear getting those voices out there. Ted, one of the recommendations you guys have proposed post-conference was seeking additional funding to ensure animal health networks. Obviously, we've got a lot of concern about African swine fever. We've got high path avian influenza in the news. What was NASDA looking for with this particular piece of policy? Sure. Well, I think you and your listeners probably know well or can imagine well just how devastating uh, African swine fever would be to the U.S. We've seen that play out in China and so many other parts of the world. And so there is something to say about getting the resources. Uh, Long term, it would be things like vaccines. Short term would be all the tactical things that let you be preventative. I'll take you back a couple of years ago when Secretary Purdue and USDA invested in 70 to 100 new Beagle dogs, all of them for the Customs and Border Protection friends. And boy, the payoff was big because, you know, one of those Beagles detected some meat from China that came into Philadelphia. We don't know if it was intentional. Doesn't matter. It was there. And so you take a look at all the preventative actions that we can and are taking and it takes resources. So this was the call for what we were chasing. We at the Departments of Ag, our state veterinarians, the likes of the Animal Plant Health Inspection Service at USDA and beyond. And animal health is one of those things where coordination between state departments of agriculture and the federal government are crucial. We've seen that in your home state of Indiana right now with this high path AI outbreak. Do you feel as though there's the steps in place to get things talked about and discussed uh, between the two groups pretty easily? Uh, We have heard from many that those discuss, well, first on high path avian flu for poultry, the, the maturity, the maturation process that happened and took place in 2015-16 has paid huge dividends. And it's clear that for Indiana and Kentucky and Virginia, who have had some outbreaks, the collaboration, uh, the response time was so very swift. And so we're getting projections that it shouldn't be that bad. Now, you don't ever know when a new detect will come. But for those places where they've got it isolated, the action was swift. In fact, they didn't even wait on federal inspectors to get there. They knew they had been prepared on what to do. And that's the beauty of, in this case, the APHIS State Vet, State Department of Ag relationship. African swine fever is a different critter. I mean, it's... uh, uh, you don't have those those um, uh, geographic areas set aside, regionalization we call it, where if it's detected in one state, the other states can continue to do action. Most uh, countries around the world tend to say the entire country is shut off. So we have some policy work to do with our friends internationally. We know APHIS is all over that. We have uh, the kinds of... Uh, prevention and biosafety, biosecurity measures that we want to continue to educate farmers on. So uh, just the, the, the threat of African swine fever, particularly with its detection in the Dominican Republic and Haiti, is a signal from our neighbors that said, beware, be ready, and that's what we're calling for. All right. In the production agriculture business, Ted, a lot of us, when we think of our State Department of Agriculture, we think of what they're doing for us on the production side. But departments of ag across the country are also responsible for school lunch and food and nutrition. Can you tell us a little bit about what NASDA decided, if anything, on the, uh, the nutrition side of the ledger? 
Well, good, good catch. Uh, yes, uh, not all, but most of the state departments of ag play a pretty key role in the farm to local food, to, to food banks, to schools. I mean, it's farm to you name it. And those programs are rising. I think the COVID uh, outbreak, the slowdown in the transportation and supply chain system has has, has kind of shouted the need for at least a relief valve in that regard. And so there were a lot of discussions about how we do that. In some cases, there is funding required, but in other cases, it's just simple regulatory mid-course corrections that allow local farms of all types uh, to do that. Now, you know that the U.S. is very diverse, so not every area is heavy in dairy, or not every area is heavy in the proteins, or not every area is heavy in the produce. So a lot of this is how we bring all that diversity that makes for a balanced meal and bring them together in different spots so that schools or food banks or others can have access. So, yeah, this is one thing that we're looking at, and I think uh, hand in glove with that was the call for greater um, um, protein processing facilities. So there was a lot of discussion by our state directors, secretaries, and commissioners on how we do that and don't waste taxpayer or state taxpayer monies. So those were very much a part of uh, of the discussion as well. Dad, over the past two years, COVID has really thrown a wrench into a number of state budgets as sales taxes have dropped and property taxes have changed. From the departments of ag that you spoke with, how do they feel they're sitting financially, funding-wise? Obviously, there could always be more, I'd imagine. But do, do you think we're sitting on a fairly level playing field as our industry comes out of COVID? Uh, we're, we're, we heard that they're better than many people might think. For example, the massive amounts of money that were pushed out in certainly the Biden administration and early on the Trump administration uh, clearly, clearly helped a great deal. Some of the reprieve on things like uh, uh, hours of service, if you're a truck driver, all of those things uh, have have been paying big dividends, and frankly, because so many people weren't were not out, or expenditures were not being made, uh, uh, coffers uh, of of finances aren't as in bad a shape as you'd think. Now it does vary somewhat. So uh, the value of all that is now that we're getting reopened. I mean, for example, D.C. gently reopened while we were in our conference. We didn't have to mask up, for example, when we were at our big reception at the Washington Nationals ballpark. Didn't have to show your uh, uh, your uh, proof of vaccination card. So things are getting back to normal ever so slowly out here. Uh, but still, uh, we have the funds, but we've still got to make it work because there's still some strife. There are still some closures. There's still some pain out there in the food and ag area. In many cases, not all, but many cases, our members in the state departments of ag uh, are at an epicenter on that in the locale, in the local areas. That's correct. That makes sense. Before we let you go, Ted, obviously, farm bill conversations are starting already. Was there anything new that NASDAQ's like to see put into or changed in the farm bill as of yet? Uh, yes, there is. The areas may not be new, but there's always a new need for a full or a half twist. I will quickly just list the 10 areas of the farm bill that we will be primarily focused on. The first one is agriculture research. Many people do not know that we are dwarfed by other countries of the world in the funding dedicated to general ag research. So that's number one. You've already covered it, but animal disease is is second. By the way, these are in no particular order. These are uh, by well, uh, alphabetical. Animal disease, Mr. conservation. Mr. McKinney, security. we are going to have to stop here. We need to get you back on, dig into these farm bill proposals in detail as it gets closer. But I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you so much, Mike. All the best. And folks, stick around. We'll talk Commodity Classic coming up in March when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. 
As an organ donor, your story doesn't have to end. The good in you can live on. In fact, you could save up to eight lives with your gifts. Your heart could keep beating. Your kidneys could keep filtering. And your intestines could keep on digesting for others. And that's not all. You can improve the lives of 50 more people as an eye and tissue donor, restoring sight and health. And you're not just helping out the person receiving the transplant. You're touching whole families with your life-saving gift. Register in minutes. Just go to organdonor.gov. You'll be happy you did. And just maybe, someone else will be happy too. Sign up today. Go to organdonor.gov. It saves lives. U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. Nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together. This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. Hi, I'm Gary Sinise. Since 2011, the Gary Sinise Foundation's Serving Heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic American meals at travel hubs and military locations. And now, together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and a feeling of togetherness around the table. Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve together, we can make a difference, bite by bite. Every Tuesday, we're sitting around the table, sponsored by CHS, where we'll be talking with folks from throughout the cooperative system. Join us as we discover what makes cooperatives unique when there are more options to do business with than ever before. We'll learn how farmers and ranchers like you benefit from a system where decisions are made by the members that own it. Tune in every Tuesday for Around the Table or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. National FFA Week is February 19th through the 26th, and FFA students from across the country will be sharing their stories. I'm the National FFA Secretary, Jackson Sylvester, from the state of Delaware. National FFA Week is a time to share what FFA is and the impact it has on members every day. And because FFA and agriculture education prepare students for careers, leadership, and the ability to face what the future holds, that impact is profound. Share your FFA stories during hashtag FFA Week. Oh, nice engine. Supercharged? Yep. High porosity and aggregates? Yep. Porous medium for gas exchange? Uh-huh. Microbial catalytic potential and repository for carbon and nitrogen? Check, check, and check. Oh, man, that is good under the hood. And to think I used to be impressed with hammies. So... When was the last time you looked under the hood at your farm's production engine? At your soil? Is it as healthy and productive as it can be? Stop by your local USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out and unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by NRCS and this radio station. DTN and Progressive Farmer bring producers the best content in agriculture. Each day our editors post unique content to our website, bringing you the latest news and information you need for your day-to-day -day business decisions. DTN and Progressive Farmer provide insights throughout the year to questions like, what is the outlook for corn yields in 2021? Will feed prices surge? What about land prices? And what's today's weather forecast for my farm? For more intelligence like this, visit DTNPF.com. Young farmers don't listen to the radio, right? Wrong. In a recent survey, 74% of young producers said they get their most important agricultural information from their trusted farm radio station. Surprised? Don't be. If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Radio is the perfect companion because it goes with you everywhere. Whether you're in the shop, on the combine, or in the truck, farm radio is right there with you. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. You're listening to AOA, 
Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Thanks for tuning in to AOA today, ladies and gentlemen. You know, we heard from Ted McKinney there just a second ago about the policy conference happening this week in Washington, D.C. for NASDA, and folks are getting together. I had the chance to talk with Max Armstrong, who's down at the National Farm Machinery Show in Louisville. He said farmers are excited. They're getting out. They're talking. They're connecting with one another. It's good to see folks getting back together in some of the big places, the big cities that have been a little more challenging to get together in. Well, there is another big event, a big gathering. Coming up for agriculture, March 10th through the 12th in New Orleans, it's Commodity Classic Time. Joining me to bring us up to speed on what to expect if you could make your way down to Nolens this year is Gary Porter. He's a farmer from Missouri and co-chair of the 2022 Commodity Classic. Gary, thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks, Mike. You know, farmers and exhibitors are looking forward to getting back together and the normal, you know, and just the things are really rolling in the right direction and registration is on par for the last two in years, uh, person in person years, and the trade show is sold out. So it's going to be big. There's going to be a lot to see as folks are walking around that trade show. Gary, bring us up to speed. This is at the convention center in New Orleans. And how should folks look to get registered, or or where can they find some more information? Get the key points for the Commodity Classic. Yeah, just uh, log on to commodityclassic.com, and you can get all the information you need commodityclassic.com check that out so you've got the trade show booked solid the nice thing about commodity classic gary is there's always a unique array of products you see a lot of folks from around the country a lot of smaller manufacturers come and bring those those things that can really solve a specific problem for growers so what's one of the your favorite things to walk around and do at the commodity classic well looking at the new machinery that they have out you know something new that an equipment dealer has put out that you know you've never seen before that's always nice. And there's also the little booths that you walk through and, and see things that can help you on your farm that you didn't even know that uh, existed. And they'll be there at that show because everything that's new will be right there in that show. That is fantastic. You know, when we think about Commodity Classic, obviously it's a place to get together. It's a place for farmers to, to reconnect with one another, to take a look at what is new on the manufacturing front. But also, it's a hardcore discussion of policy for a lot of different farm groups. I understand there's going to be a couple of banquets just like uh, like usual at the Commodity Classic this year. Who's going to be uh, Who's going to be there? There will be. So one of the things that everybody looks forward to is our general session. That's whenever Secretary Ag Tom Vilsack will be there speaking. And so we're looking forward to see what he has to say about fertilizer prices and supply issues with parts and chemicals and also maybe a little bit about the new farm bill. Yeah, all of that stuff is in the news. I'm sure it's going to be on people's minds. Gary, as we think about gathering, of course, and getting together, it's COVID still a concern. In particular, some of the precautions are still a concern. What what should folks expect if they're planning to come down to Commodity Classic? Well, COVID numbers are coming down and mass mandates are being lifted all over the country. And I'm currently in the National Farm Machinery Show down here in uh, uh, Louisville, Kentucky. And things just feel like they're back to normal almost. I mean, it's moving in the right direction for Commodity Classic, and I, I just think it's going to be a great time. Absolutely. For now, though, New Orleans, I understand, does have a mask mandate, so folks should be prepared. But I saw earlier this week Disney lifted there, so hopefully it'll be coming off in the short term. And, Gary, as you think about what else is happening at Commodity Classic, the different meetings and the conversations, what prompted you to get involved at the, the committee level this year? Why did you want to be a co-chair? Well, I've been on Missouri Corn Growers for several years, and then I just started moving in the right direction. So. I attended Commodity Classic for a, a long time now, and it's always been something that I've really been able to learn and bring back to my farm to increase you know, the ROI of your farm. So uh, I attend the learning sessions that they have and different uh, seminars they put on. It's all free. You go in there and you can learn something. What I did was like high-yielding corn and soybeans. You can, you can learn from the best and the things that they are doing to make the higher yields on their farm. And you can take those back to your home farm and maybe do the same thing there and increase the productivity of your farm. And that's what it's all about. And farmers really like taking that back home to, to their, their ranch. 
They do. There's just something about picking up ideas from other folks who have started something, tried something, you tweak it, you learn about it, and you make it your own. And we see the industry continue to evolve. Gary, I've also I've got to talk to you about the PAC events, political action committees. There are a bunch of those at Commodity Classic. What's the purpose of those PAC events for folks who are maybe unfamiliar with the phrase? Yeah, that's the way that we can raise a little money to help get your word to the Capitol Hill. I mean, there is bills and issues going through at the Capitol that uh, really affect the, the farmer down on their, their own little farm, and no matter what part of the country they're in. And if you don't have somebody representing you in Washington, D.C., and guarding you and making sure that the right things go through and the right bills, or you watch over the right bills to make sure what passes and what doesn't pass, if without that, it would be trouble for the farmers. And so that's what the PAC auction is all about, raising money to represent you in Washington, D.C. Absolutely. And, of course, there's always entertainment at Commodity Classic. Do we know who's coming this year? We do. Yeah, really. We're going to have Sarah Evans. She's a singer-songwriter from Missouri. So she's kind of one of my favorites, and everybody's going to love to hear her. And that's a free concert on Saturday night, uh, the last little celebration before you go home. (laughs) <laughs> Do be sure to, to delay your flight so you can stick around for the entertainment. Gary, as this conversation about putting Commodity Classic has been happening, as you've been talking to folks, obviously there's a lot of excitement. The, the businesses are preparing to come in. Were there any big no-shows that uh, happened at the trade show this year, or is, is everybody you were hoping for there? Everybody is here. I mean, just, we had our fingers crossed because after last year, you know, and it was so discouraging last year, you know, but we had our fingers crossed that everything would turn out great this year and it did everybody came back and more i mean we have people showing up that's never been to commodity classic before and filling a booth every booth is full and so we have lots of information and lots of booths for farmers to walk through and look at and all the new items to look at and so also we also provide great tours we have the port of new orleans tour that you can get on boat and go through the port of new orleans and look at containers and also our sugar cane farm, which will also be really fantastic. Absolutely. Ways to learn about parts of agriculture might be unfamiliar to a lot of you. Check it out. That's at commodityclassic.com. Gary Porter, thanks for talking to us today. Thank you. And folks, tune in tomorrow to AOA. Daryl Peel, cattle economist with Oklahoma State, will join us, and we'll talk about what's going on in this cattle industry. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow on AOA. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Today, more than 6 million Americans are living with Alzheimer's, and more than 11 million family members and friends serve as their caregivers. While researchers are working tirelessly to end Alzheimer's and all other dementia, the number of people living with Alzheimer's is expected to more than double by 2050. The toll of the disease is monumental, and its devastation affects family, friends, and especially caregivers. No one should face Alzheimer's and dementia by themselves. If you or someone you know is struggling to provide care to a loved one, please share this message. You are not alone. Free help and resources are available 24-7. To talk with an expert and obtain disease-related information, care and support services, Call 800-272-3900 or visit the Alzheimer's Association website at alz.org. You are not alone.